Good morning, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Wednesday, July 14th, 2021, and we will be discussing an article in the most recent Foreign Affairs entitled Becoming Strong by Yan Shui Tong. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, happy July 14th, Bastille Day. This is the day my parents got married back in 1941. Wow. I'll always remember. I always remember July 14th because that's Bastille Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, uh, how far, how far the world has come since 1941? How far the world has come since Bastille Day? How far the world has come just the last 20 years? Mm-hmm. And today, uh, from uh, Professor Suitong, uh, I think we're going to have a very interesting uh, article uh, about becoming strong of of China and the world and it's going to be a very very interesting i think uh, talking about it yes now i think that i'm a little biased and this is why we do this so here on the podcast we always read the articles in full because we're not trying to put our own spin or decontextualize anything that professor shui tong is saying um but i'm a little biased because i know for a fact that in china freedom of speech isn't a thing I mean, it's like the way that we conceive it here. And even in the movie that we watched on Monday, which was American Factory, when a Chinese factory came to America, they were telling the Chinese workers, you know, you can do a lot here that you can't do in China. You can make fun of the president. And it's fascinating to realize they live in a country where they can't make fun of the president. Now, I think that my American mindset makes me want to discount scholarship coming out of China because there are guardrails on what they can and can't say. But that's my own bias. That just because there are guardrails on what they can and can't say doesn't mean that what they are saying isn't valid. That's right. That's what I was going to say. That I I agree with you, and I understand that, and I think we all understand that. But mm-hmm. uh, we should understand that. But on the other hand, uh, one thing that we've always said here on Sons of Sequoia is listen to the other person and try to understand what they're saying. And I think it's really good and healthy to listen to the other side, listen to their argument, try to understand what their argument is, what they're trying to say, what they mean, instead of just undermining it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Understand what they say. Now, we we may criticize, but we're not criticizing out of, uh, out of we're, we're criticizing or just talking about it out of respect, respect for what do they mean? Do they mean this, this? And when you compare with other sides, you can make your side stronger. So so even though uh, uh, Professor Sui Tong may, may listen as, hey, we, we may disagree, but that disagreement is not out of disrespect. It's out of respect and saying, let's understand each other's side and that'll make our side stronger uh, or well, it'll make each each side stronger uh, once we understand why we believe what we believe or why we think what we think uh, versus someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I was re- when I read this, I, I thought you always have in in personal affairs and business and maybe even in foreign affairs. Uh, you have a David. You have a background in political science. Uh, I don't. I have a background in analytics and business. So we have a, two different perspectives coming at it, but. But as far as arguments are concerned, arguments, uh, you can have very short term arguments and say, yes, 
uh, that's true in its own right. But then you're going to have more of a long-term implication. Uh, you can have it correct in a very small arena, uh, but then when you start comparing that with a much larger uh, uh, arena of global economics or global po political science or global states, it can be very different. Uh, and so he's going to be talking about uh, Chinese versus the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think sometimes what happens is that people, when they start looking at short term, uh, they will focus just on uh, the short term results without looking at long term systemic growth. And I think that uh, there's where you get into the fallacies of straw man arguments, uh, which which is valuable. I mean, it works. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you should always recognize different arguments. Yes. Uh, and the final thing is that, you know, where you stand is where you sit. And getting back to your point, David, well taken that he is uh, a dean. He's a dean of a, of a Chinese university and uh, of uh, Tsinghua University. And uh, he's uh, learned, intelligent, and uh, let's just understand their position and uh, as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to say I've been watching a lot of criminal psychology videos on YouTube, and there's always, you know, red flags. And this is, I mean, this is true for a criminal that ends up, you know, doing something bad, or it's true for anyone in the world. But the, in the comments, people often like to say, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. And I think that's interesting. Like we say, listen more than you talk and try to understand what the person is saying. Now, I think that Yan Shui Tong's scholarship here, or, you know, his, there's no grand Chinese strategy to it. He is truly saying this is a Chinese perspective on Chinese foreign policy. This is how we view the world. And there's no ulterior motive. And you can really learn a lot by listening to someone instead of saying, let's discount his his viewpoint because he's in China and there's guardrails on what he can say or saying, you know, China is a nominal, um, not enemy, but what's the word? Competitor, competitor to the U.S. preeminence in the world. And therefore, we need to take everything that's coming out of Chinese scholarship with a grain of salt or, or dismiss it out of hand. That's the wrong approach to take. This is someone um, at our largest competitor, a professor at a uh, one of the largest universities in China, the dean of one of the largest universities in China, uh, sort of laying out Chinese thought behind Chinese foreign policy. This is a valuable thing for any person in the U.S. to read. That's right. That's right. Uh, no matter whether you agree with it or disagree with it, try to understand their argument. Mm -hmm. So should we get into the article? I'm ready. All right, Becoming Strong, The New Chinese Foreign Policy by Yan Shui-Tong. Yan Shui-Tong is a distinguished professor and dean of the Institute of International Relations at Tsinghua University. And I believe that's in Beijing. Is that correct? I think so, yes. Let me just double check just because I don't want to say something wrong. Sing, Tsinghua University. I probably have it here, too. Um, yeah, it's in Beijing. So it's in the capital of China. Good. Sorry for the clicking and clacking, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't telling false stories before we got into the article. Yeah. Okay, Good. so are we ready? I'm ready. Okay, here goes the body of the article, Becoming Strong. In March, China's top diplomat, Yang Jiechi, made 
headlines when he told U.S. officials at a summit in Alaska that they did not have the qualification to speak to China from a position of strength. Even after years of heightened tension between Beijing and Washington, the remark seemed unusually harsh, especially coming from a seasoned diplomat. The setting, too, was noteworthy. Yang was speaking at the first high-level diplomatic meeting between China and the United States since President Joe Biden entered the White House. It seemed like an unmistakable warning to the new administration. At home, Yang's comment circulated widely on social media, resonating with the belief that many Chinese uh, of many Chinese that their country has found its voice on the global stage. International media read the statement as reflective of a post-pandemic China, ambitious and outspoken in its claim to global leadership. Yang's statement did, indeed, reflect the paradigm shift underway in Beijing. China believes that its rise to great power status entitles it to a new role in world affairs, one that cannot be reconciled with unquestioned U.S. dominance. Beijing's initial hopes that a Biden administration would ease tensions with China have been dashed. Instead, it views Biden's attempts at isolating China diplomatically as a serious threat and is working on multiple fronts to make sure the country to make the country less vulnerable to U.S. aggression and pressure. Beijing's newfound confidence does not mean it will challenge Washington in every single domain. China rejects U.S. leadership on some issues, but as a developing country, it will limit competition to areas in which it feels it has an advantage, such as the fight against COVID-19, poverty reduction, trade, international infrastructure and development, digital payment systems, and 5G technologies, among others. Across the board, however, a post-pandemic China will make its voice heard with greater determination than before and will push back forcefully against any attempts to contain it. Okay, what do you have to say about that? Oh, you're muted. Yeah. The first section uh, was a very good introduction. And uh, actually, it's interesting because he alludes to statements said, how the statements are, how, the reaction to the statements. And it's kind of like reaction to this, reaction to this, reaction to this. Uh, and he's uh, illustrating the maybe immediate tension uh, that could be there. Uh, and this, uh, from what we saw on Monday with uh, the movie that we saw with the uh, uh, the American factory, it could highlight the differences of how things are taken. And yeah, the top diplomat, uh, Yang Jiuqi, uh, uh, made, he made those comments. Well, those comments will be taken very differently in China than the United States. Mm -hmm. And so he's using that as an introduction to say, Yes, there are differences. Things will be, will be taken differently. But in my thinking there, this doesn't necessarily mean that's going to change foreign policy. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's just their perception of how things are going to be between each other. But he, so it, that's, again, that's short term. He did say it does represent a paradigm shift. He's using that. Well, the way I thought of it was that he's using it as a as a uh, an example of a paradigm shift in policy. I yeah. mean, they, uh, while well, reading this article, I, I don't think. I, I, well, I think, well, I think that. They've always been that way. This is how, <laughs> this is, this is how I read it. And I think okay. I differ from you. It's, he said this and it's like, oh my God, that's crazy. I can't believe he said that. Wow. They're really assertive nowadays. Wow. They really think that they are taking the lead. 
And he's saying, so in Europe and in America and China, we all took it different ways. But from our foreign policy perspective, this means that we will be more assertive in areas that we've determined as appropriate to our interest. Um, but not on every front. We're not going to try to outcompete the U.S. on every front. We've identified some. And that is a paradigm shift. I think that in the past, you know, ma manufacturing, large-scale manufacturing, um, maybe foreign infrastructure, just to, that was the, the fields in which China felt it could outcompete the U.S. Now that it has outstripped them in, in some of those fields, especially, you know, large-scale manufacturing, it's like, well, let's focus on some other fields. But it does show that they're becoming more assertive. They're choosing other areas in which they feel they can outcompete the U.S. Yes. And uh, maybe I wasn't making myself clear. What I was saying was is that this is just a top lip, bip, a top diplomat making a statement. Mm -hmm. In the United States, people say things all the time. Yes. They go, ah, yeah, oh, yeah, you know. They come and go, come and go, come and go. In China, it doesn't happen that way. If someone says something, that's going to just spread across the country. Look what we said. Mm -hmm. I'm saying there's two different reactions to it. Maybe that's maybe that's a clearer way of saying that. Yeah. And in China, that statement has a much different take than in the United States. And so he's saying, hey, this happened in China. And this may be a signal of change diplomatically or foreign policy or relationships in the future. But it's just maybe a signal for it. It may, may not be, that may happen, it may not happen. Mm -hmm. uh, it will change because our present president is very different than our former president and relationships are gonna be different. Uh, but moving forward, foreign policy is much deeper than just personalities. Personalities are important but it's much deeper than just personalities and what, what people say. Okay, yeah. Should we move on? Sure. Do you want to read? Okay. Uh, China's dual identity. To be the world's largest developing country, a popular moniker in Beijing, once meant that China's capabilities surpassed those of its immediate peers. Nowadays, it means the country's power is second only to that of the United States. Consider the sharp contrast between Chinese success and American failure in the fight against COVID-19. China suffered the least among all major powers during the pandemic and is the only major economy to have grown over the past year. By the end of 2020, its GDP had a 71% of US, of US GDP, up from 66% in 2019. And Chinese policymakers are confident that they will close the remaining gap in the coming decade. In their eyes, China has gone through the stages of standing up and getting rich and is now advancing to the stage of becoming strong. The U.S.-led unipolar order is fading away. Its demise hastened by China's rise in the United States' relative decline. In its place will come a multipolar order with U.S.-Chinese relations at its core. Until recently, Beijing viewed this once-in-a-century shift with unalloyed optimism, predicting a bright future for Chinese national rejuvenation. The turmoil of the Trump years, especially Washington's decision in 2017 to label China a strategic competitor, 
caused the Chinese officials to dial down their enthusiasm. China's most recent five-year plan strikes a more sober tone, listing opportunities in the realm of technology and development and warning of the instability fueled by unilateralism, protectionism, and hegemonism. Yet the bottom line in Beijing's eyes remains the same. China has become a global power that can meet the rest of the world on an equal footing. China's global reach still has its limits. Despite being a major power, China also thinks of itself as a develop developing country, and rightly so, considering that its GDP per capita remains far behind those of advanced economies. The International Monetary Fund puts China's 2020 GDP per capita at only 10,484, compared with 40,146 for Japan, 45,733 for Germany, and 63,416 dollars for the United States. The developing country label is also meant to signal Beijing's geopolitical alignment. Even if China catches up with the West economically, the thinking goes, its loyalties will still lie firmly with the developing world. It will, as Chinese President Xi Jinping put it in 2018 speech, forever belong to the family of developing countries. This dual identity will color all aspects of China's post-pandemic foreign policy. As a developing country, China still lacks the resources required of a true world leader, with globe-spanning responsibilities, especially in the military realm. As a great power, however, it will not follow the United States' lead. And on some issues, competition with Washington will be inevitable. Take the issue of ideological rivalry. On the one hand, China is anxious not to frame relations with the West as a new Cold War. Leaders in Beijing believe that Soviet-style ideological expansionism could trigger a backlash that might hinder their country's continued growth, and they do not expect their ideology to become as popular as Western liberalism is today. Hence, their insistence that China is a developing country with Chinese characteristics a phrase meant to imply that its political system and governance model cannot merely be exported to other countries. On the other hand, China will try to shape an ideological environment favorable to its rise, pushing back against the notion that Western political values have universal appeal and validity. The United States defines democracy and freedom in terms of electoral politics and individual expression, for example, whereas China defines them in terms of social security and economic development. Washington will have to accept these divergences of opinion rather than try to impose its own views on others. The same conviction will animate China's post-pandemic diplomatic strategy. Contrary to the common perception, Beijing does not reject multilateral rules and institutions out of hand. It will not, however, accept rules that the United States makes without consultation with China. Instead, Beijing's objectives is for international norms to rest on a truly inclusive multilateralism. Such is the idea behind the China-based multilateral forms that Beijing has been building with a host of states and regions, such as its cooperation forms with Africa, Arab, Latin American, Pacific Island, and Southeast Asian states. From other major powers, meanwhile, Beijing expects treatment based on equality and mutual respect, as illustrated by its assertive 
retaliatory uh, sanction strategy. When the Trump administration imposed sanctions on 14 high-ranking Chinese officials over the disqualification of some Hong Kong lawmakers, China took revenge with sanctions on 28 American officials, including then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Likewise, Beijing quickly retaliated against British and EU sanctions over the uh, Xinjiang issue. On both of these matters, the Chinese government considered any sanctions or criticisms of its policies as interference in its internal affairs. Chinese economic policies are shifting too, impelled both by the pandemic, which revealed the vulnerability of global supply chains, and by US attempts at economic decoupling. In fact, the Chinese government believes that protectionism is a slowing world economy and shrinking global markets will outlast the pandemic. Under a new dual circulation strategy, which was unveiled at a high profile Chinese Communist Party meeting in May 2020, Beijing therefore aims to lessen its dependence on foreign markets. The goal is to shore up China's massive internal market and to build robust domestic chains of supply, distribution, and consumption, thus reducing the country's vulnerability to outside economic pressure, especially from the United States. Science and technology will be the center of this effort, laying the groundwork for future development. The resulting domestic boom, it is hoped, will in turn improve economic relations with other states and aid the recovery of the world economy. Beijing will also seek to reduce its exposure to U.S. financial sanctions, including by promoting the use of the renminbi in foreign trade and investment. Last year, it started trials of a digital currency in a handful of large cities, an innovation that could one day allow China and its business partners to conduct international uh, transactions outside SWIFT, the financial messaging system, which is under de facto U.S. control and a major source of American geopolitical leverage. China will, of course, not turn inward together. The Belt and Road Initiative, Beijing's massive global infrastructure campaign, will continue although progress has been slow during the pandemic. Since the dual circulation strategy enshrines the domestic market and not global linkages as Beijing's primary political focus, the BRI's Belt and Road Initiative's projects will henceforth be based more on market demand than on political considerations. China will also continue to seek technological cooperation with other countries, provided they can resist U.S. pressure to decouple from China on this front. China's military strategy, by contrast, will remain largely unchanged in the post-pandemic world. Beijing seeks to turn the People's Liberation Army into a world-class fighting force ready for war at any moment, emphasizing quality over quantity, cyber capabilities over conventional prowess, and artificial intelligence-based weapons systems over individual combat skills. Yet the PLA's mission will remain one of deterrence, not expansion. China's 2021 military budget, albeit larger than that of other major, major powers, is less than a third of what the United States spends on defense. On top of this budget disparity, China's military lacks experience. The PLA has not been involved in a shooting clash since 1989 and has not fought a real war since 1979. As a result, Beijing remains wary of direct military confrontations and will continue to reject 
military alliances, which would drag it into an unnecessary war. For the same reason, China has been careful not to let territorial conflicts in the South China Sea and on the Sino-Indian uh, border escalated into live fire clashes. So what do you think of that? That, that was a lot an there. information dense uh, segment for bam, sure. Bam, bam, bam. So let's, I, I want to rewind it real quick. We'll go back to the beginning. Uh, I mean, there's so yeah. much. Um, this is very, where is it? The beginning. It's an ex extremely um, political science-y thing, talking about how we want not a unipolar world, but a multipolar world. And I think that's a very interesting way to put it because um, multipolarity hasn't really existed since before the Second World War, where you had Germany, the UK, France. Um, then on the other side of the pond, you had the United States. To the east, you had the Soviet Union, Japan. It was a multipolar world with great world powers. That's what led to you know, a world war, all these powers sort of vying for, for primacy. Now, subsequent to World War II, you really had a bipolar world. That was the United States and the Soviet Union both sort of exerting their um, prerogative in their own spheres of influence, whether that be the Warsaw Pact, the Eastern Bloc states, or the United States and its NATO allies and uh, the liberal democracies of the West. Now, the interesting thing about what uh, Professor is saying here is he's looking for China to assert themselves in a multipolar governed world, not a bipolar governed world. So we're not going back to the Cold War. We're not going back to a Soviet style system or, um, you know, U.S. versus Soviet. And um, he takes great pains to point that out here. China is anxious not to reframe relations with the West as a new Cold War. Soviet-style ideological expansionism could trigger a backlash that might hinder the country's continued growth, as they do, and they do not expect their ideology to become as popular as Western liberalism is today. So their ideology is uniquely Chinese, and they're looking to sort of become a great power in a world of great powers, and that sort of means China and the U.S. as equals— with the European Union as a very significant economic bloc, um, probably standing on the bronze medal podium. And then, of course, you have Japan and the, the other com uh, emerging economies of Southeast Asia and, of course, Korea as well, sort of c coming to fruition. So that's sort of, I think, what was interesting in the initial part of this section, of which was entitled China's Dual Identity. Now... Then he gets into more of the details, and there's a lot of details in there. Um, China defines their goals as social security and economic development, whereas the United States defines their goals as uh, individual expression and electoral politics. And I think that's funny to sort of reduce the United States to electoral politics, something that was a total circus this last year. So it's like, that's who you are. You're that circus. We are social security and economic development. You're electoral politics. That's that's your ballywick. And look at how well you guys are doing it. Um, look, at, I mean, I think that there's a broad swath of the country, you know, the 40 
46% of the people there's a that voted for the guy that lost the last election resoundingly there's a significant portion of that 46% that doesn't believe that electoral politics is a US value they would rather throw away electoral politics if their guy doesn't win and that's that's concerning so i think that this is a little bit of a dig i don't know M maybe i'm just reading too much into it what do you think well, I think when you start putting labels on things and characterizing uh, nations or decisions with titles and labels, mm -hmm. I think that's extremely dangerous. The world is much more complex than that. Whether you're talking about the United States, China, uh, the EU, uh, no matter who you're talking about, it's much more complicated than that. Yes. And I think when you, when you start putting labels on it like that, you're just trying to make an argument. You're not really trying to move towards something that's going to be useful. Yeah, I I think it's sort of like saying um, the United States is a country based on free refills and uh, free speech. China is a country based on hunger and limited internet. And it's like you can put labels on it, <laughs> and like you can't get on Facebook in China, but like that it sort of does a disservice. I kind of think that was a little bit of a a dig, honestly. This, the United States defines democracy and freedom in terms of electoral politics and individual expression. Yeah, he's trying to make a point, and uh, it it uh, sometimes when you have an make a have a, a premise mm -hmm. to make a point, the premise becomes more important than the conclusion. Yes, I, I also think. <laughs> Like, I've been watching some coverage of the Conservative Political Action Con Conference, and uh -huh. some of it's pretty bananas. Like, some of the things people say, um, like, we don't want your Fauci-ouchie, you know, like, the, talking about the vaccine, and then everyone cheers. And it's like, you know, like, I'm going to behave in a way that's completely reckless, and everybody cheers. I mean, that's not to say that Professor Young... Um, Yan. Yan. That's not to say professor yet, but I believe that when you're in, probably inculcated in Tsinghua University, there is a cultural aspect to it. You're sort of saying, yeah, U.S., they're the country of electoral politics, and look how well they're doing that. So you, that, that makes its way into your article. I mean, even though I'm sure that he interfaces with American scholars all the time, but there is, there's a culture around every university, right? And I'm sure that Tsinghua University's culture is different than, let's say, UC Berkeley, where he, where he studied. On the other hand, by using uh, the democracy and freedom in terms of electoral politics, individual expression, probably allowed, once they have that, allowed them to give their argument uh, to, to distinguish themselves from the United States, give their argument of their approach and give, give a foundation for their approach. Whether it's true or not, it gives them a, appeal for their approach in moving forward. And it's funny that they said Social Security and economic development. Well, economic development, yes. Social Security, uh, uh, well, he gives statistics. It's, it's all relative. Yes. Now, my point is you, you can straw man this thing. That's why, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. create a straw man and then have your argument to move your, your argument, your position uh, further. Uh, and so maybe it was effective. Yes. Uh, when you look at the premises of electoral college and electoral politics, that's not our freedom. 
uh, that's just a system. And so uh, most of the country, uh, well, now, just as you say. I'm listening go. to this with open ears, I'm, and I understand that he's laying out Chinese foreign policy from a Chinese perspective. And yet, I can't help but take a critical eye. Uh, when the Trump administration per imposed sanctions on 14 high-ranking Chinese officials over the disqualification of some Hong Kong lawmakers, a.k.a. when China reneged on their agreements to have two, uh, you know, one state, two systems, and sort of came in and asserted their dominance in Hong Kong and sort of took democracy away from Hong Kongers, uh, the Trump administration put sanctions on 14 high-ranking officials. Well, what did China do? Well, they took revenge on 28 American officials. They doubled up the amount. And, and I think that uh, framing it as disqualifying some Hong Kong lawmakers doesn't tell the story of what happened in Hong Kong. I feel like that really soft sells what went on there. Uh, and I'm not sure that he's allowed to hard sell it, but... Uh, I think there was an agreement in place. Uh, Hong Kong was a special administrative region. Hong Kong had autonomy. Hong Kong had democracy. And now they don't. And you can frame it as, oh, we just disqualified some lawmakers. And it's like, ah, I, I, I beg to differ. I think that I, I would frame it a little differently. But that's just me. Um, but also the oh. sort of chest puffing of we took revenge by doubling up. They, they took 14. We took 28. Uh, you know, I think that's that's sort of saber rattling in in text form. Exactly. Exactly. I I saw that. I'm sure everyone, pretty much everyone in the United States who read that says, "Wait a minute, that's not what happened." Yeah. Actually, we we had a podcast on on what happened in Hong Kong. Uh, again, you have things that are uh, de facto. Mm -hmm. And you have things that uh, are that which is accepted or that which is reported uh, or that which is real. Yes. And a lot of times what is what is said politically or what is said, even in articles, uh, is trying to make an argument. Uh, sometimes it's whitewashed. Uh, the reality could be extremely different. And and OK, I'm going to say something and it may be that Professor Yan never comes on our show. And we may never be able to travel to China again, but I'm just going to I'm going to throw this out there. OK, when he says the PLA has not been involved in a shooting class since 1989, is he talking about when the Chinese military turned its guns on its own people in Tiananmen Square? Is that what he's talking about? Uh, I don't know, but I'm sure. Yeah. That's good I, question. I, that's just a question. I'm just asking questions. Is that the last time the PLA was involved in a shooting clash? When, um, I don't know, because that would be sort of a, an interesting thing to yada 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 over. But that's my biases coming in again. I mean, mm -hmm. but the thing is, like I said, that's ancient history. That was you know 32 years ago. Let's let's move on from that. And it's like, yes, but what happened in 1989 was consequential. And if you Google it, you can't Google it, but if you, the Chinese equivalent of Google it, you can't find that picture. Um, did you know that? You know, uh -huh. a, you know a picture I'm talking about, right? Yeah, with the tanks and they were standing and that we're yes. talking about? Yeah, the picture, if I just Google, 
Yeah, if you show it, they'll never show it in China. Yes, so this will be images. There it is. It's the second image. Interesting. Oh, wait. I can't see it. Can oh, they, let me transition they, real quick. Can everyone see it? Here's, yes. So it's this picture right here. The big one there, yeah. With the tanks and the guy standing in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, is that what he's talking about with the last time that the Chinese military was mobilized? Against its own people. Well, you can say that against China. They did. But then again, the United States has done that, too, this last few years, too. Yes. We've done it, too. And so th these things do happen. Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful. Uh, so you're using these things to, to shore up your argument politically, you know. And I think it's interesting how, how, uh, how related are they? Yes. How related really are they? I'm sure there's some type of a, a logical misconnection or, or, or divergence there. It's like, we'll say this, and that's the premise for this conclusion. There's that's they're, they're pretty much just they're not really linked that yes. strongly. Now, if if I was also if I was not talking to you, but if I was talking to let's say a, a mid-level Chinese politician in Shenzhen about the, what happened in Hong Kong over the past few years, they would have a different set of facts. It's like when people argue here in America, when they argue about the election and they say the election was stolen, they say those facts aren't my facts. Um, you know, everyone, every independent investigation, every recount, every audit says that that's not true. It's like, well, I believe it's true. So we're never going to come to a resolution to this. The, um, you know, a mid-level Chinese functionary from Shenzhen would say those lawmakers were disqualified because they weren't qualified to be lawmakers. All we were doing was making sure that the rules were followed and the appropriate lawmakers were in Hong Kong. Now, are you saying that we're not allowed to make sure that we have the right people in the right spots in our own country? And we're operating from a different set of assumptions, right? Right, right. So, so where you stand depends on where you sit, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, there again, I think I think it's healthy. I want to go back to what I what I started with this podcast. I think it's healthy to not just discount what people say. Try to understand what they're saying, what they mean. Doesn't mean you agree with them. Mm -hmm. Like I see what they're saying. I see why they're saying it. I see what they're saying over here on the right, on the left, on the front, on the back, on all sides. It's not just two sides. There's a lot of sides. I see all different people see the same thing differently. I'll try to understand everyone's view and then get the facts and then make a decision based on whatever uh, conclusion and the value that conclusion is going to give you. In other words, you don't you should not make decisions based on information coming into a decision. You should make decisions on how valuable that decision is going to is going to be in the future. Mm hmm. And uh, what, what's it going to do to the people, to the nations, uh, to security, uh, to growth, to everything in the future? Instead of looking at the past and getting upset, look at, let's look at the future and see how we can build and be positive. Yes. And that's why it's important to listen to everybody, what everyone thinks, what everyone says, because it takes everyone to move uh, to be successful, whether you agree with each other or not. Mm hmm. 
Well, I think that we need to move on. This is going to be a long episode. So let's get to the next section. Sound good? A healthy competition. A healthy competition. Biden's election initially raised hope among Chinese officials and media that Washington's China policies were due for a fundamental rethink. That optimism quickly faded. Instead of a radical break, Biden's policies to date are in many ways a continuation of his predecessor's confrontational approach. As a result, U.S.-Chinese relations are unlikely to grow any less tense or competitive than they have been in recent years. The Biden administration forays into exclusive multilateralism, that is, its attempts to form issue-based coalitions in opposition to China on technology and human rights are bound to be a particular source of tension in the years ahead. Beijing views this as the most serious external threat to its political security and the biggest obstacle to its national rejuvenation. U.S.-led anti-China technology coalitions are an obstacle on China's path to technological superiority, and similar ideological coalitions will encourage secessionists in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, and Xinjiang. Both involve core interests on which China will not make concessions. To counter U.S. attempts at forming such coalitions, Beijing has already begun shoring up its bilateral strategic partnerships. Within weeks of the public clash between American and Chinese representatives at the Alaska summit earlier this year, Beijing embarked on an extensive diplomatic campaign, dispatching its defense minister to the Balkans and its foreign minister to the Middle East, where the latter official signed a 25-year strategic cooperation agreement with Iran and pledged $400 billion in Chinese investment in the country. At home, China received foreign ministers from Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and South Korea, signed a joint statement with Russia that, in a departure from tradition, omitted the usual assurances that Chinese-Russian cooperation does not target any third party. In the years ahead, Moscow is likely to be an important partner of Beijing's in pushing back against the politicization of human rights issues and in promoting alternative models of democracy and non-ideological multilateralism. Xi also sent the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un a message stating his willingness to further consolidate Beijing's relations with Pyongyang. Before we go on, I just want to say, uh, this state, this sentence, this is a long sentence. This is all one sentence. And there's a lot of yada, yada, yada going on in this one paragraph. So I just want to read it again. Yeah, do. Yeah. To counter U.S. attempts at forming such coalitions. That's coalitions that let's just sort of preface this with what was said. Technology coalitions are an obstacle to, on a path to China's technological superiority. And ideological coalitions will encourage secessionists in Hong Kong to Taiwan, Tibet, and Xinjiang. So um, that's basically saying Hong Kong and Taiwan are part of China. Um, I mean, Hong Kong, in fact, is part of China now, and they're not even a special administrative region anymore. It's one nation, one system. Um, Taiwan, you could argue, hasn't been a part of China for 60 years. But China would argue, oh, yes, it has. They may have their own government and their own diplomatic corps and their own national identity, but they're still part of us. And they're just secessionists. They're just secessionists. It would be like if uh, the United Kingdom said, 
Um, the United States of America, they're just secessionists, but they're still part of England. Right? I think the difference is de facto and de jure. Mm-hmm. The, the Taiwan is de facto their own country. De jure, they're part of... Uh, China sees them as part of China. Yes. So they're forming alliances with everyone. Um, the Balkans, the Middle East, $400 billion to Iran. That's bound to raise some eyebrows among Americans. And then, of course, receiving ministers. That's not necessarily making any hard and fast commitments. That's not necessarily... It's sort of saying, we received ministers, these people are on our side. That's not necessarily true. It's just a shot across the bow. Yes, like, look, we received ministers from Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, and South Korea. Well, I think it's sort of saying South Korea, Singapore, the Philippines, like these allies of the U.S., they're coming here to talk with us. And it's like, of course they are. You're a giant in the region, but that doesn't mean that they're allied with you. But you sort of add that in there, and it sort of implies, oh, these people are coming to our side. Singapore, Philippines, South Korea, they're, they're on our side. Okay, even though, again, we may never get uh, uh, Professor uh, Shreitong on our side, but I'll, let me just say, even though he's in academics, even though he's an academician, he's even dean of a school, these two paragraphs really not are not academic. They were throwing out uh, different pieces of information uh, for for uh, purposes of uh, of uh, creating an image, mm -hmm. and he's not establishing uh, an argument. I do. I, yeah, I also think it's it's a little bit of saber rattling. So we gave mm -hmm. four hundred billion to Iran, and there's nothing you can do about it. We are having we're receiving the foreign ministers from your allies. And there's nothing you can do about it. We're signing joint statements with Russia that omit the usual assurances that we're not targeting any third party, which by implication means that we're targeting the U.S. with these uh, joint statements. And Moscow is going to be an important partner. This is this is what I what got me in pushing back against the politicization of human rights issues, not against. So. Yes, to make an omelet, you got to crack a few eggs. You got to violate human rights of certain people to run an authoritarian government. But it's not that when people accuse you of, I don't know, putting Uyghurs in concentration camps, they're not mad that you're putting Uyghurs in concentration camps. They're trying to politicize human rights issues. And it's like, no, I think they might just be mad that you're putting people in concentration camps. It's like, no, you're just trying to politicize these issues, and Russia is going to help us push back against the politicization of these issues. And, promoting and in promoting alternative models of democracy and non-ideological multilateralism. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's yeah. crazy. But again, it's crazy from our perspective. Sits. It's crazy he from our in, perspective. He's sitting in Beijing, and that's exactly what he needed to say in this article mm -hmm. that's out there to the world. Uh, and I think when you when you start saying these things to the world, people can look at this and say, "Okay, fine, that's what he says. Uh, this is an opinion. Uh, this is this is an opinion. It's flowery language." 
uh, it's not an these are not academic arguments. These are flowery statements uh, to try to create an image. Mm -hmm. And that I'm sure they're well taken in China. Yes, definitely. And it's like they're well taken in Beijing and Beijing to say we gave 400 billion to Iran. What's the U.S. do about it? We're meeting with South Korea and Singapore, Philippines. What's the U.S. going to do about it? We're signing joint statements with Russia that don't sort of explicitly say that we're not targeting the U.S. What are you going to do about it? It's sort of uh, puffing out your chest, right? That whole paragraph, in a way. Let's back, let's back up and then say, so this is in foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. People reading this, what's going to be the impact? Uh, who is this for? Is this for us? Is this for Americans? Is this for... Uh, the Sons of Sequoia podcast to look at that and say, oh, wow, they're right. No. Is it going to be for academicians across the United States, academicians in the world read this and go, oh, yeah, they're right. No. Who is this for? Who's going to look at that and read this and say they're right? The CCP? Right. The, the CCP. <laughs> yeah. The CCP. It's like this article That's, is accurate. So the article may be, parts of it may be for different people, but these paragraphs are for the CCP. But I think also these paragraphs are for, as an American, you need to realize that China can push its own prerogatives and push its own per, uh, initiatives, especially diplomatically. And these are the ways in which we're doing it already. Expect more to come. Like we're, we're untethered from sort of U.S. restraint in a lot of areas where we once were. And that will continue. And this is what it looks like now. Tomorrow... We may even go further. Exactly. To say it a different way, whether they're doing this or not, this is what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. This is their attitude. This is the direction they're going to be going when they can. And when they have the opportunity, they're going to go in this direction. So what this does to the United States is say it's framing their opinion, their intentions on what they're going to be doing moving forward. And as far as foreign affairs are concerned, this will frame how to deal with them uh, with international issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, so pushing back against the politicization of human rights issues, I think there are serious human rights issues in China. But then again, I remember hearing a story last year about the forced sterilization of migrant women at migrant women camps in the United States. They were giving them forced hysterectomies. And I think Russia, you know, like... Russia is going to aid Beijing in pushing back against the politicization. I think what they're going to do is they're going to throw in, yeah, China may have, you know, Uyghur, Uyghurs in prison camps, but at least we don't round up women that try to come to our country and sterilize them. That's what you do in the U.S. That's the sort of politic. They're not going to push back against the politicization. They're going to heighten the politicization where everyone's so outraged at everyone that no one could be mad about anything. I think that's that's that would be the strategy as far as I could see going forward, because, I mean, it's not like every country is without human rights abuses. I just think that they should be universally condemned, not, yeah, you guys have human rights abuses and you need to clear that up. And then that, that response to that is, yeah, but what about your human rights abuses? And then you say, our human rights abuses? What about your human rights abuses? And then they say, well, ours? What about yours? And then it becomes a game of never doing anything about it because you're just blaming the other guy for something they've done. I think that's a serious strategy. Well, it's, well, 
uh, that's a strategy that's always been used in human history. Mm-hmm. It's it has been used. It is used, and it'll continue to be used. Yes, uh, because that's how people can not talk about things that are going to be detrimental to what they want to do. Yes, or they will support what they do. Uh, it's just a smokescreen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, moving forward, uh, this is the kind of things that they will help them move forward. And it's and I, I always think about uh, they'll say anything, they'll do anything. Mike makes right. If you're going to win uh, in the arena, then whatever you say then uh, carries weight, no matter what it is. Yes. Okay. And so, uh, so it's not about what is right and wrong. It's about who wins and who loses. Yeah. It's not about yeah. It's not about ideology. It's about power, right? It's always about, it's all about power. It's about power. So we're never going to finish this, but I'm going to keep reading, okay? (laughs) Oh, we're almost done. Okay. We're we're close. We're getting close. Beijing still hopes it can confine tensions with Washington to the economic realm and avoid an escalation to military clashes. Yet, the risk of a conflict over Taiwan especially is growing. Beijing's most recent five-year plan reiterates its commitment to pursuing peace and prosperity across the Taiwan Strait, a policy that has long prevented potential U.S.-Chinese war over the island. Although China has not given up the principle of peaceful unification to date, it may abandon it if Taiwan announces de jure independence. That means independence by law. They have de facto independence right now. The more other countries support Taiwan's secessionist policies, the more the PLA will carry out military exercises to deter Taiwan. In the meantime, Beijing hopes to reach a tacit understanding with Washington that maintaining peace in the Taiwan Strait is a shared interest. That, this is not to suggest that cooperation with Washington is out of the question. Beijing has expressed its willingness to play an active role in reforming global governance regimes, in aiding global, the global economy's post-pandemic recovery, and in tackling transnational challenges in concert with Washington. Xi Jinhua, China's climate envoy, has already met with U.S. counterpart John Kerry. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has signaled that China does not oppose the Biden administration's efforts to relaunch the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And U.S. and Chinese diplomats have discussed plans for each side to recognize the other's COVID-19 vaccinations for the purposes of overseas travel. Meanwhile, China is open to trade negotiations based on the so-called Phase 1 agreement signed by the Trump administration in 2020. And even some U.S. officials, such as Tom Vilsack, the Agriculture Secretary, have noted that China has so far made good on the promises made in that agreement. Even if competition carries the day, it would be best thought of as a race, not a boxing match. Each side is doing its best to get ahead, but neither has any intention of destroying or permanently changing the other. In 2019, prior to becoming high-level national security officials in the Biden administration, Kurt Campbell, the National Security Council's top Asia official, and Jake Sullivan, now the National Security Advisor, argued as much in these pages. Quote, the basic mistake of engagement, they wrote, was to assume that it could bring about fundamental changes to China's political system, economy, and foreign policy. A more realistic goal, they continued, was to seek, quote, a steady state of clear-eyed coexistence on terms favorable to U.S. interests and values. That view is not too far removed from Wang's hope that both sides should engage in healthy competition based on improving oneself and illuminating the other side, rather than mutual attacks and a zero-sum game. If neither Beijing nor Washington intends to subjugate the other, their rivalry will be fierce, but milder than the existential great power struggles of the 20th century. 
Okay. Um, I think we talked a lot. The uh, the biggest part was the the first part was the most salacious. You know, with uh, we gave Iran money. We're partnering with Russia to make sure that we never get questioned on human rights abuses. But then when he talks about Taiwan, he says they're secessionists. It would be like if Texas seceded from the Union and they had their own country and we were like, well, that's part of the U.S. It's like, no, it's not. I mean, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. it's fascinating, right? That's right. That's right. Again, I think that was for the CCP, as you said. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the view. And uh, in, in one sense, he pretty much has to say that. He has to say it this way, whether he believes it or not. Yeah, uh, but I'm sure he does believe it because he's Chinese and he's in Beijing and he's in a university mm -hmm. and he's a dean. And, you know, you're not going to say anything to undermine that. Uh, and uh, and also the next paragraph where he talks about uh, uh, cooperation with Washington, saying, oh, yeah, we can cooperate. And he keeps having the theme of cooperation, 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 uh, which is a positive word. But in the minds of Chinese, uh, China, I mean, uh, the minds of China, that cooperation simply means that we are, an, we are on an equal basis with the United States. We're the same as they are. Yeah. Uh, they're not stronger than we are. They're not bigger than we are. They're not better than we are. We're as good as they are. I also want to There's, point out, oh, go, go ahead, sorry. That we're both the same strong powers in the United States. Mm -hmm. We are as strong as they are. There are two superpowers in the United States, China and the United States. They want to be seen on equal with the U.S. I also want to point out, and I always, as a political scientist by education, not by trade, I also always take language like this, and it immediately, I red flag it. Beijing has expressed its willingness to play an active role in reforming global governance regimes. Okay, so expressing willingness is free. That doesn't require any commitment. It doesn't require any money. Um, it's expressed willingness to aid the global economy's post-pandemic recovery and tackling transnational challenges in concert with Washington. Well, expressing willingness is different than doing something. Expressing willingness is different than pledging $400 billion like they did to Iran. They haven't pledged $400 billion to aid the global economy's post-pandemic recovery. They've done that to Iran. So I think there's difference between policy in fact and policy in word. And this isn't policy in word. They haven't signed an agreement. They've expressed willingness. I'm expressing willingness to be able to bench press 350 pounds by tomorrow. <laughs> but just because I've expressed willingness doesn't mean I'm going to do it. <laughs> That's like <clears throat> you and I know a, a close friend of a close person. We say, so have you done anything about uh, what you needed to do over there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, what have you done? Well, I have really thought about maybe <laughs> trying to think about possibly uh, considering uh, thinking about maybe doing something about it. But then I started thinking about uh, maybe thinking about it maybe in the future. Mm -hmm. Moving in the direction of considering mm -hmm. going well, forward with. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, it's just, yeah, I've done something. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So that's so easy to say, right? Is that it, the same thing, David? Yes. And the thing is, this this the expression of willingness that was sort of put on equal, like you're saying, uh, China wants to be on equal footing with the, the expression of willingness to help is exactly the same as the four hundred billion dollars they gave to Iran. They pledged to Iran. It's like no, it's it's not the same. One is material, the other is just words. And not codified words on an agreement that's signed. It's, oh, yeah, we would be willing to look into maybe, I'd be willing to maybe look into driving you to the airport at 5 a.m. tomorrow. I would, I, I could express willingness. I'm not going to make any firm commitment. And uh, just just call me tomorrow at, at 5 in the morning. Let's, let's see if I'm awake. If I'm not awake, figure it out yourself. Um, there's, I mean, expressing willingness, that's one thing that red flags me. Another thing, and this is off topic, it's when a president gets up at a State of the Union and they say, we're going to do something and we're going to do this miraculous thing. And my timeline is 10 years after the last year that I could possibly ever be president. You know, like Joe Biden, when was he elected? 2020. So the most he could spend is uh, eight years in office. So if he was to say, like, we're going to put a man on Jupiter and we're going to do it by 2038. And it's like, wow, man on Jupiter. That sounds great. And it's like, yes. And if we don't do it, it's the guy after me's fault or the gal after me's fault. You know, making a promise that if it falls apart, it's not your fault because it's, you know, well after your time. That's another like classic. That's sort of like expressing willingness. But that's off topic. (laughs) Shall we finish? Sure. Okay. You want me to read the last? Sure. Oh. Okay. You want me to read the last one then? Yeah, sounds good. New new battlegrounds. How will such competition play out in practice? It will, for one, unfold on novel battlegrounds, chief among them cyberspace. As the digital sphere takes over more and more of people's lives, cybersecurity will become more important than territorial security. Already, the digital economy is growing rapidly as a share of major powers' GDPs, making it an essential source of national wealth. The race for leadership on 5G and 6G telecommunications networks will increasingly shape the contest. And for the time being, China seems to be in the lead. By February 2021, Chinese companies, including the technology giant Huawei, accounted for 38% of approved 5G patents, compared with around 17% for U.S. companies. In other areas, however, American digital platforms remain ahead of their Chinese counterparts, and U.S. digital platforms account for some 68% of of the global digital economy in terms of market capitalization, compared with just 22% for Chinese companies. Meanwhile, international cooperation will increasingly take the form of issue-specific coalitions instead of truly international or even regional institutions. At times, Beijing and Washington might belong to some of the same clubs, for example, when it comes to the non-proliferation of cyber weapons and certain kinds of artificial intelligence tools. In the long run, the digital superpowers could eat in the long run, the digital superpowers could even have a shared interest in introducing and enforcing some international tax regulations 
to protect their own companies from being overtaxed by other countries. For the most part, however, China and the United States will build rival teams, with other countries deciding which to join on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on which arrangement best serves their national interests. Most governments will welcome this trend, having already adopted hedging strategies to avoid picking sides between the two powers. Of course, a club-based international system will bring complications of its own. A country that joins some coalitions led by Washington and others led by Beijing will be a less trustworthy partner for both powers. It could also become common for members of the same coalition to punish one another for, for actions required by their membership in other clubs. For instance, both Australia and China are members of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, a trade agreement among a dozen states in the Asia Pacific. Yet disputes over human rights recently led Australia to cancel its BRI deal with China, which responded by suspending an economic dialogue between the two countries. Likewise, Eastern European states have often told Chinese diplomats that their membership in the EU forces them to side against China on political matters. The same countries, however, cooperate with China on infrastructure investment and technology at the risk of violating EU regulations, citing their participation in the cooperation between China and Central and Eastern European countries, a diplomatic forum in the region initiated by China. Such conflicts are likely to heighten political instability and accelerate the trend toward deglobalization in the decade ahead, but they are preferable to a world split into rigid geopolitical blocks. As long as individual states remain members of clubs on both sides of the divide, it will not be in their interest to throw in their lot with one side only. This bipolar configuration will cause, will cause some tension, but on the whole, it will be far less dangerous than all-out Cold War-style competition. China's post-pandemic foreign policy is just beginning to take place. Beijing has always adjusted its policies to shifting domestic and foreign circumstances, following Deng Xiaoping's approach of crossing the river by feeling the stones. The coming era will be no different. Achievements and failures will inform China's path and choices. The backdrop to these adjustments, however, will be a radically altered global landscape in which unilateral decisions by Washington and the various alliances and issue-specific coalitions it leads will no longer be as viable as they once were. As many states prepare for a return to life after the pandemic, they should come to terms with this new reality. The end. Thank you. Yes, I was actually muted for that last segment, so I'll say that was the article by Yan Shui Tong, um, professor and dean of the Institute of International Relations at Tsinghua University. I think kudos go out to Foreign Affairs for including these perspectives in their publication. Exactly. I thought it was very, very good. good. You should hear all sides, both sides, even China's side. Yes. And I, th I think it's really good to hear these things. Mm -hmm. And... I think that we have more perspective after reading this article about what China feels about the future of foreign policy than we did if we hadn't have read it.
right? I agree. I agree. And I think this last part, when he sums things up, it kind of, again, uh, brings it right down to how they how they see things, mm-hmm. how they approach things, how they're going to move forward. And I think uh, even though it's possible that Beijing doesn't totally agree with everything he said, I think in general, in principle, they do. Yes. And I do think, like in this final segment, and of course, I just have the final line, they should come to terms with this new reality. He's basically saying, these are the things that we want, and it's obvious that we're going to get them. So just let us have them. And I think the important thing for a United States policymaker is to say, this is what they want. How does this align with our interests? And where are our efforts best put in fighting them or in in, in pressing our own interests? What are our interests? Where do they overlap and conflict? And where are the skirmishes that we can win? Now, also, I do want to say this, and I was thinking about this because I always think about stuff like this when people start throwing out numbers. 38% of approved 5G patents with 17% for U.S. companies. Okay, so that's what, 55%? 55%. So there's 45% of approved US of approved 5G patents that aren't accounted for. And out of these 38%, how many of those are approved by the US Patent Office? And how many <laughs> of those are approved by the Chinese Patenting Agency? And of those 38%, is there any redundancy that are approved by the US Patent Office for US patents, but not but approved by the Chinese patent office, and they're the same exact patent. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So this this statistic uh, gives me pause. I, I, I don't put a lot of credence in this statistic, and I feel like Huawei's ability to sort of set up 5G networks was based upon their scale and their ability to offer a similar product at a lower price than U.S. or EU telecoms not really about their technological superiority. That was that was my understanding. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also at the end here, they, he kept equating USA and China. Mm-hmm. US and China, US and China. And that's kind of like his theme about becoming strong. Basically, the whole one, one objective of the article, in my perspective, is that here's the United States right here, and China is right here with them. Mm-hmm. And that's one purpose of, of talking about uh, becoming strong. And he's alluding and implying they're as strong as the United States. Yeah. Moving forward, they have to move together because both of them are equally strong. In, uh, and the implication is in, in all areas. Yes. But he he's explicitly said not in all areas in the beginning, if you remember. And the, it was interesting what he pointed out. Let me see if I can try to find it. Um, what he pointed out as the areas. Um, here we go. I found it. Um, Beijing's. Uh, uh, oh, oops. Can I just read the whole paragraph real quick? Sure. Beijing's newfound confidence does not mean it will challenge Washington in every single domain. China rejects U.S. leadership on some issues, but as a developing country, it will limit competition to areas in which it feels it has an advantage, such as the fight against COVID-19, poverty reduction, trade, international infrastructure, 
and development, digital payment systems, and 5G technologies. Now, these are, well, I mean, so these three, the first three, are, in fact, they're leading on this according to their own metrics. So, in fact, they did better on COVID-19 than the U.S. did. And now, I think that people doubt China's numbers of total infections and total deaths because there was a lot of inside baseball going on in terms of cooking the books in terms of those numbers. Poverty reduction. Oops, why do I keep doing this? Uh, poverty reduction. That's, we've raised a billion people out of poverty. Now, who else can say that? That's like, well, no one but India can say that uh, because no other country has a billion people to raise out of poverty. Uh, trade. Obviously, they're the, the, they became the, the factory of the world. So, of course, they're going to be a net exporter. Now, those are three things that are, in fact, things that they lead on. And then the next three things are their aspirations. International infrastructure and development, digital payment systems, and 5G technologies. Now, I think they say see these as strategic... Uh, areas in which to outpace the United States. So the first three are the three areas where they see themselves, in fact, having an advantage. The next three are, if we can secure advantages in these areas, we will outpace the United States. We will take away some of their key strategic advantages in global commerce and trade and global power. So I think it's fascinating the way that he did that. Mm-hmm. And actually, what you're doing right there, David, uh, on Monday, we saw an insight on some of the Chinese perspectives of Americans. And uh, what we're doing, what you did just then, is fact-checking. Is, is, uh, it, it's not, it, it's, it's, I would say it's respectful in saying, well, here's how you see it. Here are the facts. And based on the facts, here's how I see it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's healthy to see other views, uh, not just everybody has to agree with me. That's very dangerous, mm-hmm. very dangerous, because reality, the real world is complex, and you have to understand all possible pitfalls, and you just identified one of them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good way. It's a good rhetorical tactic. Sort of you start with things Right. that factually are true, and then you go to things that are aspirationally true. Right. Like, okay. the Broncos want to outpace you on defensive backs. Let's say they have the best defensive backs. We want our secondary to really shut you down, but then we also want our linebackers and our line to shut you down. But their linebackers and their line stink. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So you're not going to be passing against the Denver Broncos. You're going to be running it all the time because their line stinks and their linebackers stink. You won't pass because they have the best secondary. But they say, we're going to outcompete you in the secondary and with the linebackers and the line. You know what I mean? So you sort of, you start with what's good and then you go to what's aspirational. Right. It's a rhetorical tactic. It is. Now, and, it, and, it, and it works. Yeah, and that, that's, that's not to say that international infrastructure development and digital payment systems and 5G technologies aren't three places. Uh, they've identified them. They're pursuing them. And honestly... If you saw the interventionism against Huawei in the last year or two to make sure that Huawei wasn't the company that builds 5G across the world, that was non-market intervention by the U.S. government. 
So I think that Huawei was poised to outcompete American and European telecoms in the building out of 5G infrastructure. And we couldn't outcompete them in the marketplace. We had to outcompete them regulatorily by saying, you're not allowed to build here. We want our firms to build here. So that's that's kind of unprecedented, right? That's or right. That that's sets right. a precedent where we're willing to use our governmental power to sort of stifle capitalism because these communists are out competing us in a capitalist system, right? Uh, again, the world <laughs> is complex. It's a very complex world. Uh-huh. And you can have a rhetorical argument and it sounds good, but hey, the world is real and there are real things going to happen. You mm-hmm. might say that and say, yeah, 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 but then it doesn't always happen that way. And so one thing when you start fact-checking and start thinking broad and start thinking reality, it doesn't always happen the way you think it might happen. Yeah. That's why you have to stay stay flexible and also listen to other people. And, I mean, the argument is, oh, it's a national security thing. Huawei can't build out our 5G infrastructure. I think it's a – I mean, there's a modicum of truth to that, that if China controls all the key technologies that will shape the 21st century – it is a national security thing. They'll be the global superpower. But the problem is, it's also a capitalism thing. They've made the critical investments and they can offer these products at the price, they have the scale that none of our firms have. And that's an issue. But the issue is maybe not with Huawei. Maybe the issue is we have incentivized the wrong things in our economy and the keys to the castle now aren't in our hands anymore. <laughs> well put, well put, well put. Um, so yes, I like this article and I, I mean, as an American who's sort of grown up learning American patriotic points of view and sort of studying foreign policy from the perspective of an American, but not working in foreign policy, I do have these visceral reactions to some of the things that are being said, uh, from a Chinese perspective, because I feel like they're being said to provoke Someone with with knowledge of of America, like a, a layman's knowledge, or you know, I'm a, a very high layman's knowledge. I would consider my knowledge of foreign policy high layman because I don't work in the the industry, you know. Um, but some of the things are provocative that he's saying in this article, but other things are these are the areas where we're going to focus, and it's sort of laying out a game plan. When people tell you who they are, believe them. And I think that for American policymakers that do work in this this field, they need to say, this is a game plan that's just been laid out. What do we do about it? And the thing is, on some fronts, you're not going to be able to compete. On others, you may. Where are your resources best spent? I think that's what American policymakers need to be thinking about at this point in time. Well, I think the article was good. And again, uh Kudos to foreign foreign affairs to publishing these articles uh, from from Beijing universities, and also uh, uh, Professor uh, Shui Tong's very good article was well received. I really enjoyed reading it. To hear the arguments, to hear the perspectives, to hear the position, I think it's extremely important to hear everyone's point of view. Yes. And try to understand where where they're sitting, where they're from, why they're saying what they're saying, to understand everyone's point of view. I think it's very, very important. Mm-hmm. I think that we've learned something, right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we hope that you've learned something, too, if you've been listening to us. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Apple, Amazon, Stitcher. And, of course, we're live every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time on YouTube.com slash. Well, I don't think we have our own custom URL. So YouTube.com, search Sons of Sequoia. That's S-E-Q-U-O-Y-A-H. Now that we are ending the show, is there anything that you would like to say before we leave? Yes. Sons of Sequoia S-A-Q-O-I-A-H, the person, <laughs> not the tree, I-A. It's A-H. Because at Sons of Sequoia, we like to keep on talking. And listen more than you talk. And try to understand what other people are saying. Bye. Bye. <laughs>